What's it like to spy in on the spies? Kate Atkinson will be here to discuss her latest World War II novel, Transcription. How has imprisonment turned into a billion-dollar industry, and what are the consequences for the incarcerated? Shane Bauer will be here to discuss his book, American Prison. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. I'm thrilled to have in the studio here with me the brilliant novelist Kate Atkinson, author of nine novels, is it now? Ten or eleven even. Don't know. Eleven novels, <laughs> approximately eleven novels, including the great Jackson Brody series and her latest novel, Transcription. Kate, thanks so much for being here. Oh, it's great to be here. So tell us about Transcription. It's um, set in two time frames, 1940, 1950, and centers around a girl called Juliet Armstrong, who in 1940 is 18, and she's smart, but she's naive. She's very arch. She's a clever girl who's slightly out of water. She's just been bereaved, so that has a, a big cast on her character. We meet her again in 1950 when she's 28, and she's a producer at the BBC, and she's a, a different person, still smart, but now she is very cynical, I think, and she's been through the war, and she's been through several experiences that occur in the book, obviously, that have shaped how she is now. So in 1940, she's recruited reluctantly by MI5. She doesn't want to join because she knows that it will be clerical, Mm -hmm. And it will be boring. And she gives one of those interviews, you know, when you don't want a job, so you give a very bad interview. So she lies throughout because she is a pathological liar. But in fact, it counts against her because she's being interviewed by MI5. So a liar is a good thing. So she is recruited and she does do an incredibly tedious job. And then she is uh, moved on to do something slightly more exciting. This is her third novel in a row that's kind of taken place in the same sort of London, World War II, Blitz era period, uh, first life after life, then a god in ruins. Why? What was the attraction? I know you in your earlier novels, pre-Jackson Brody, you also had some. I did have some more. For me, this is not a, a war novel. It's just I was so intrigued by the the real story that the plot is loosely based on that it had to be of necessity set during the war because it's about MI5 in, in the days of the war, but it's the phony war. So it's a very different, I don't know if you know that phrase in America, but it's June 1940 when nothing appears to have happened. Mm -hmm. So the British haven't been bombed. They haven't bombed anywhere. France hasn't fallen. Dunkirk hasn't happened. So it's a time of much more paranoia and tension and people not sure what will happen. So in fact, the British government thought there was going to be a massive gas attack, which is why you see everyone carrying their gas masks around. And I actually forgot to give anyone a gas mask in this book. <laughs> to me, it wasn't about rationing and, you know, oh, you know, all of that blitz spirit. It was about this particular story, but it has to happen in the war. So I'm very casual about the war, actually. I don't really go into any great detail. It's mm -hmm. not. It's, it's not, always sort of burbling in the it's background. It's just in the background in many ways. Yeah. But so if it's not a war novel, what to you is it? Is it a spy novel? It's just a novel to me. <laughs> I'm the person who has to refuse genre categorization. So I think to me, when I'm writing a novel, it's a novel. And then it's everyone else's job to say, oh, she's written a spy novel or she's written this or that. Apparently, science, Life After Life is science fiction, partly a science fiction novel. Which I just surprised read that. Me. Yeah. <laughs> Having read the novel, I didn't realize that it's true that when, when I read Life After Life, 
I thought it was such an original conceit, just the whole structure of it with the lead character who is sort of constantly reborn, occasionally taking with her bits of knowledge from the previous life, occasionally maybe not necessarily, and then dies in a variety of, of circumstances, sort of making her way further along in her life. I thought it was so original. So I asked uh, my husband, who has read a lot more science fiction than I have, have you heard of this before? Has this been done before? Because he's fond of sort of saying, oh, you know, no, that was done way back in the 1940s and everything. But he hadn't. So apparently it was a very original science fiction story. I've not read any science fiction, I don't think. So I wasn't being unconsciously influenced. To me, it was just... To me, time travel isn't science fiction. It's just what a lot of writers do because they can and you can't do it in real life. You know, we're on, a, for want of a better word, a journey and it only ends one place and that's not a good place. But, you know, in the novel, you can you can experiment with what how things would be in a different dimension, I think. It's more like quantum physics than science fiction. Not that I understand a word of quantum physics. <laughs> You mentioned earlier that this novel transcription takes place in two time periods, but it does begin a bit later oh, on. Oh yes, in I always time. forget that there's a third time period, yes. <laughs> which is 1981, which bookends the whole the whole book. But it's not, you know, it's not experimenting with time or messing about with time. As people are always saying to me, you know, you mess about with time. I mean, you don't mess about with time. But this is it's it's just very structural. There are two time periods, oh, three three time periods, and you know, there's nothing fancy about that. Well, to go back to life after life, just for a moment, and that question of time, where did you get that idea of having this character constantly? I said for years I had wanted to write a, a novel or even a story called Parallel Lives, in which someone, you know, it's a bit like Wolf's Orlando, but this woman is born as a woman, the next time she's born as a man, and then she's born as a tree, and then she's born as a table, whatever. But that struck me as really not working very well. But I've been waiting to write a war novel. I've been waiting to be ready as a writer to write a war novel. And somehow the two clicked that, you know, this would be about the Blitz, but it would also be about being reborn again and again. But as as Ursula, not as a table or a tree or, or whatever. So it just kind of, I remember being at lunch with my publishers and they said, um, so can you give us an idea about the next book? They're always very, you know, tiptoey about it. Mm-hmm. Give us an idea. And I said, well, there's this girl and she's born and she dies 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 in Ephronitum and then she kills Hitler. And they just looked at me and I could see them thinking, we can't sell this. <laughs> <laughs> not to try to categorize your novel yet again, because it's 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 not a World War II novel. It's not necessarily just historical fiction, but it is in certain ways a kind of spy story. Uh-huh, yeah, it is. And I didn't, I mean, I knew right from the beginning I was dealing with espionage because I was dealing with MI5 files with a basis for, for the book, but I still didn't really think of it as an espionage novel because I've never, I've read a couple of Le Carre's, but I haven't read spy novels. So I wasn't working within those parameters, but I knew what they would be like. So I knew that there were sorts of fun things to be had, the dead letter drops and, you know, all of the mysterious communications. And But I wasn't really consciously, again, writing a spy novel. I sometimes think I'm not really aware of what kind of book I'm writing until I finish. Sometimes I get to the end and I think, oh, that's why I had that title. Or yes, now I am here at the place I thought I might get to. But there's there's a lot of very unconscious creativity goes on. Well, the the, the idea of spy novels, the idea of Juliet as a liar, pathological liar, as you described her, the idea of, of shifting identities for women at World War II, all kind of feel 
very related, that this is a person, Juliet, who's in the process of kind of figuring out who she is and and moving in and out of various identities, both literally when mm-hmm. she becomes an actual spy for a period and then in other ways as well. Was that one of the attractions of writing about a spy? Well, I think I always say that all novels are about identity one way or another. And so in this case, you're trying to Rather than find her identity, I think she's trying to mask her identity. But then she's also surrounded by an entire cast of characters who are doing the same. And I wanted to write about ambiguity. And that's a difficult thing to write about, but also that means shifting identity as well. And I wanted to feel myself as well as the reader that when I got to the end, I didn't know who anybody was and I didn't know what side anybody was on. Well, there's a great line that you have one of your, give to one of your characters in the novel that you, a good spy is someone where you never you know. know whose side they're on. Yes. And I think that was, that was quite a driving sentence because I wrote that quite early on and I thought it's important for me too to be in the, in the fog because the fog is a, a metaphor that's used a lot because that way I'm not thinking, aha, so I'm going to make you do this and you do that and that's all going to be revealed because I wanted to get to the end and feel that nothing had been revealed, that you think everything's been revealed and then you realise nothing's been revealed, which can be very frustrating for a reader, of course. But then it is revealed. <laughs> but I definitely do not want to do any plot spoilers here with this novel, which is very twisty. But what I thought was perhaps the most interesting thing is that there is a reveal at the end and yet it's very much open to the reader, up to the reader to then think about, well, how did that work in the novel as I went along unsuspecting? And also the morality of it, because there's a certain morality involved in that, you know, in what what everyone turns out to be. And it's, a, you know, I think everyone in the book is just following their own path. Were you also inspired to kind of shed light and, and give a backstory and, and a central story to many of the characters who are often overlooked in what have become kind of familiar stories, the spy novel, the World War II novel. And yet here, rather than focus on the kind of head spy, um, the the Godfrey Toby character, we are focused on the transcriptionist behind the scenes. And rather than focus on all of the men, we're focusing on the women. And, and, And another character who's often used or has been used in the past as a kind of source of an easy villain or a source for humor, which is a gay character, which Mm. you weave in here in a very, for a period novel in what feels like a very fresh way. Well, you know, being homosexual in 1940 in Britain is absolutely not something you're going to reveal. But of course, it makes you a good spy because you're very good at keeping secrets. And Juliet herself is completely baffled by his attitude to her because she, you know, she's 18 and she's an English girl who's been at an English girls' school and who has never come across this concept at all. So that's extreme naivety. And yet it's quite touching their relationship, I think. There's, in the end, you know, they have an understanding. And, and in 1950, we see a little bit more of how you can... You can start to reveal right. perhaps your true nature, but you're still on the wrong side of the law. So it is about... The novel, in a way, is about truth because it's whether, you know, you're going to be true to yourself or whether you have to maintain a different kind of truth in order to exist. I'm going to ask you a question, both because I'm curious about the answer, but also because I want to ask you about a specific review of this novel. Do you read reviews of your own books? I end up reading reviews, no matter how um, horrified I am by the concept, I always end up reading them. And even someone will thrust a review and say, this is a great review, and we read it. And then there's a but in the middle, and I'm sure every writer's the same. It's only the but 
that you remember. Right, the caveat. Yeah, everything else is just (laughs) meaningless. Well, I won't focus on the to be sure paragraph of this review, but there was a review this week in The New Yorker that I thought made some interesting points. I'm not sure if you've read it. Yes, I have. And and I'm puzzled by that review. And uh, there's many points in that review. And I wanted to say, hang on. Well, here's (laughs) your opportunity to say it. It calls me some kind of matron of English literature, which I found quite insulting. I think matron is such a, a dubious word to apply to a woman. I don't know if it has a different concept in but as if I'm, or, or as if I'm even the midwife giving, you know, shelter to these supposedly more avant-garde writers. I think I'm a very avant-garde writer and I think I disguise it very well. And I think it's very curious that he sees me as an English traditionalist because I'm not an English traditionalist and I'm wondering how he's come to that conclusion. I've got lots of things to say about this review, but I leave it to you because you want to quote something. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, know, I mean, it also raised questions for me. The review was by Jonathan D, and I thought it was a, a I should make clear, a very favorable review. Yes, but he, yes, indeed. Um, I'm just focusing on the but. <laughs> exactly. So that's your job. I'll yeah. focus on the good points. I'm not sure that I necessarily see the comparison. Um, he, you know, contrasts you with Rachel Cusk, another it's contemporary. It's a very strange contrast to make. Oh, but I think he sees us at two ends of the spectrum. See, and I don't see that at all because I, I, I I agree with your point that I I think that you're very experimental in your work. I mean, I thought life after he also life says was, I don't write beautiful sentences, which I think is do so write beautiful wrong. sentences. <laughs> I want you to read beautiful sentences later, but I I'm going to actually read because I mark up I marked up the copy with this is not a beautiful sentence, but I love your descriptions, which I find so clever and apt and original. And this was describing a character in a cafe, and you wrote. Like many in Moretti's, he had the shabby air of the post-war European diaspora. There was a trollish look to him, too, as if he had been put together from leftovers. He could have been sent from booking to play one of the dispossessed. And it goes on. It just keeps getting better. So on that point, I disagree. Um, That's not a beautiful (laughs) sentence, but it's a great one or a great few sentences. Jonathan Dean, in, in this review in The New Yorker, when he was comparing you with Rachel Cusk, he was saying that you still believe in plot, mm-hmm. um, which I'm glad yeah. for. Uh-huh. And I'm curious if you if you start from plot or if you start from character or if, if there's a how important plot is to you when you're writing. I start from structure and structure is different from plot. I think structure is the bones that plot is the flesh to, mm-hmm. as it were, because uh if I have structure, then it's so much easier to move around in the book. But plot, yes. Plot and character, which are strangely old-fashioned, seen as strangely old-fashioned, non-avant-garde things, which is I'm curious about because, okay, there are writers writing who are not fixated on plot and character, but then that's true of 100 years ago when, you know, or, you know Gertrude Stein wasn't obsessed with plot and character. So, you know, that's that... That argument about experimentalism always annoys me slightly because, you know, the novel in itself is experimental. But I love plot and character. And I know that every reader loves plot and character too. And there's, it's, there is nothing wrong with plot. And I, I, I'm curious that he sees that as a, you know, that, and I also think Rachel has plot. She's not plotless in her novels. I think it's just a way of seeing more than anything. For our listeners, would you read a passage yes, from Transcription? Yes, be delighted to. This is a scene that takes place quite early on in Juliet's career as a spy, when she's still a humble typist, and Peregrine Gibbons is her boss, and she does have a thing for Perry, it has to be said. So when he suggests that they have an outing, she's thinking that this is going to be a seduction, which it isn't, but... They drove to the Hambledon Valley, where they swapped the comforting warmth of the car's interior for a chilly riverbank. 
It's still only April, for heaven's sake, she thought, but Perry seemed insensible to weather, although his layers of tweed must be keeping him warmer than her own ensemble, a rather light coat, thin sweater and her best skirt, not to mention her good pair of stockings and smart shoes, for she had been expecting to be viewing the landscape from the windows of the car, not to find herself standing in the middle of it. Countryside was more of a concept for Juliet than a reality. Otters, he whispered, spreading a tarpaulin sheet on the riverbank. Sir? Had he said otters? Not a seduction, then. Time rolled by, very slowly, very damply, very coldly. Juliet wondered if waiting for the otters was perhaps part of her training in some way. Surveillance, perhaps. Patience. She did need training and patience, she knew that. And it did feel strangely like an undercover mission as they sat breathlessly still on the riverbank, waiting for a little family of otters to show themselves. He glanced at her when the first one appeared and flashed her a delighted smile. He really did have a nice smile. His whole face changed and he became a man who looked capable of happiness, which was not the impression he normally gave. The otters, she realised, were an offering to her in some way. Neither fish nor flesh, she murmured, and then felt embarrassed because she recalled there was something bawdy about Falstaff's description of an otter, although she wasn't quite sure what. The quotation, vulgar or otherwise, was wasted on Perry, who said, well, certainly not a fish. The European otter, Lutra, Lutra, is from the family Mustelidae, which includes badgers and weasels. Oh, of course, she said. Juliet had never seen otters before, and the kits, and she knew that was the term for them because he told her, were charming, sleek and playful, but really they were just otters, and if he was going to give her anything, she would rather it was the picnic that she'd expected him to bring. It's a scene in which the two characters are essentially doing nothing but lying the entire time. She also betrays her obsession with food, I realize. <laughs> There's a great line in there, too, that countryside was more of a concept mm. than a reality. Yeah, she's a, she's a town girl. <laughs> He's a naturalist. Well, she's a town girl, but she's also incredibly naive and ignorant mm. at this point, at least in terms of, of sex. Completely. She has no idea what it entails, which is part of the reason she doesn't understand Perry's you know, true nature. But she's, um, she's read her mother's romantic novels, and that's about the limit of it. So for her, it's this very misty, veiled act that will take place one day, and she's hoping it's going to take place with Perry. What about that passage? Why did you choose to read that passage? Oh, just because I think it does introduce her a little bit, her, her, you know, the fact that she does just automatically give a different answer to the reality. And also she's masking her ignorance as well, of course, and he is completely oblivious to it all the time. So they are, they're constantly non, not communicating with each other for the whole of the novel until the very end when finally they do communicate in a very touching way, I think. Yeah, I thought one of the sweetest kind of passages mm. in the in the novel you recently mentioned on this book tour, I think on the UK leg, that your next book will be another Jackson Brody novel. This is true. I finished it. I've never been on tour with a book when I finished the next one. It's a very odd feeling. I keep thinking, did I really finish it? Have I really read that book? Do you get confused book? about which book you're talking about? Oh, yes, because, because you... this, yes, because my thoughts aren't even with the Jackson book I've just finished. They're with the next book I'll be writing. So it is very confusing. And then people talk about books a couple of books ago and I can't remember characters' names or anything. So yeah, your, your head is always full of the book you're writing. So the next book is the Jackson Brody coming out in 2019. Yes, this mm -hmm. time next year. Well, now that you've said that 
there's another book after that. Mm-hmm. Can I ask what that one's about? No, that's a secret. All right. Next time. <laughs> next time we get you in our studio. Kate, thank you so much for being here. Oh, no, thank you so much for asking me. Kate Atkinson's new novel is called Transcription. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Shane Bauer joins us now from Portland, Oregon. His new book is called American Prison, A Reporter's Undercover Journey into the Business of Punishment. Shane, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. How did you get interested in this subject? Uh, I had been living actually in the Middle East working as a, a journalist. I was living in Damascus in 2009. And along with a couple of friends, I took a trip to Iraqi Kurdistan and was detained near the Iran-Iraq border, and uh, ended up spending two years in Iranian prison. When I got out of prison, I came back to the U.S. I came back to California, where I live. There had been a massive hunger strike at the time, where estimates of around 30,000 prisoners were demanding an end to long-term solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. And I had been in solitary myself. I had also been in hunger strikes. I was kind of naturally drawn to this. And when I was ready to get back into my work, Rather than going back to the Middle East, which is what I thought I would do, I kind of jumped into this issue of of solitary confinement and did an investigation on that, found that we have thousands of people uh, in solitary for for over 10 years in this country. And I just kind of got pulled into the U.S. prison system from there. And after kind of working for a few years on prisons and coming up against the barriers that reporters constantly come up against when reporting on prisons, I had the idea to apply for a job, and I specifically wanted to do this with a private prison because since these prisons have existed, specifically the Corrections Corporation of American Prisons have existed since the 80s, we haven't really had a kind of really up-close look at the day-to-day life inside of these places. Mm -hmm. What are the barriers of reporting on prison for those non-journalist listeners? Mm -hmm. Like, why is it hard? It's very difficult to get access prisons. Uh, Access has actually gotten more difficult over time in recent decades. Typically, if you get inside of a prison, you uh, are kind of given a scripted half-hour tour. In a lot of states, you can't request civic inmates to interview. If you want to interview an inmate, it is provided the prison uh, chooses who who you interview. And even getting kind of basic data about prisons is, is difficult. We have public records laws that allow us to access this information, but oftentimes states just do not comply and you have to sue them to get them to comply. With private prisons, it's even more difficult because oftentimes these public records laws don't apply because they're they're private companies, so they're not subject to the same transparency requirements. Just to give people a sense of the scope of the privatization of prisons, what percentage, do we even know this, of prisons in this country are currently private operations? About 8% of the total prison population, uh, which is over 2 million people, are held in private prisons. So about 130,000 people 
and two-thirds of the immigrant detention population. The industry is about a $4 billion industry. The company that that I investigated at the Corrections Corporation of America is a $1.8 billion company. And are these private prisons concentrated in any particular region of the country? They exist throughout the country, although they are more concentrated in the South. And that's where you went. You went to Louisiana. How did you decide which prison to infiltrate? Well, I filled out an application on the website of CCA, and uh, I filled it out truthfully. I didn't lie. I included my current employer, and honestly, I didn't really think that it was going to work, but mm-hmm. I just thought, you know, it's going to take an hour of my time. Who was your current employer? Mother Jones. So you are upfront about the fact that you're a journalist and you apply online. What happens then? I, within a couple of weeks, get phone calls from uh, several CCA prisons asking me if I'd like to do a job interview. And I I do some interviews, and they do not ask me why I want to work in a prison. They don't ask about my job history. They just ask me the kind of generic questions you might expect from doing an interview at a Walmart, like how do you work with others? How do you deal with a boss that tells you to do something you don't want to do? And it was almost as if they were trying to convince me to take the job. The HR person that I spoke to in Louisiana asked me if I like to fish, you know, because there's great fishing in the area. She was, you know, trying to convince me to move across the country for a $9 an hour job as a prison guard. So you get an offer. Yeah, uh, I'm accepted. I end up having uh, a couple of prisons to choose from, and I decide to go to uh, Louisiana. I work in uh, Wind Correctional Center, which is a medium security prison of about 1,500 inmates. Happens to be the oldest medium security private prison in the country, founded in the early 90s. And the the town that it's in, Winfield, is a town of 5,000 people. The average household income is $25,000 a year. And before I started there, the, the last sheriff was locked up for selling meth. Okay. You get there. It's your first day. Describe what that was like, your first impressions of the, of the prison and what it was like for the people who work there. Well, I, I went through a month of training to start with. So my first day going to the prison, I was obviously very nervous. I you know, was worried that my cover would be blown. I didn't know what would happen if they discovered that I was a journalist. I met the other cadets in the class. Some of them were just fresh out of high school. One had his only other job he'd worked with at a Starbucks. There were single moms who were there because they needed health insurance for their kids. And the training, I remember my second day of training, we're told uh, that part of our responsibility is to, uh, as, as corrections officers, is to deliver value to our shareholders. And we, we went through this lesson about uh, where the instructor asks us what we do if we see two inmates stabbing each other. And, you know, somebody says, we call somebody, and others says, well, maybe we should break it up. And he says, our job is to just shout at them, stop fighting. And that's it. He says, we should not get in between them we are not going to pay you that much. The next raise you get is not going to be much more than the one you get next time. And uh, he says, if, if those fools want to cut each other, then happy cutting. You know, and this, this is kind of a theme that they repeated throughout training, this idea that we also need to kind of protect the company's liability. If we get in the middle of, of two inmates fighting, you know, we could get hurt, which is going to cost the company money. That's bad for business. Yeah. What does that phrase mean, delivering value to your shareholders in the context of a prison? Well, the way that the company-
company makes money is the state pays them a per diem. So every day they would get $34 per inmate. And the contract that it had with the state of Louisiana required that the state keep the prison 96% full at minimum. The companies also, you know, traded on the New York Stock Exchange and in different states, you know, the contracts uh, vary slightly. In some states, it makes $80 per inmate per day. And one of the ways that it makes money aside from this is, you know, and, and remains competitive compared to public prisons is through staffing. You know, it pays, it pays guards and other staff less than a public prison would, and it, it keeps very low staffing levels. There were days that I came to work in this prison of 1,500 inmates where there would be 24 or 25 guards. You had been a prisoner, as you mentioned earlier, before you went. I'm assuming you felt some sense of identification with the inmates. But over time, did you find that your sort of allegiances became closer to the that of the guards, the other guards? Yeah, I did, actually. When I went in, you know, the idea of taking this job was not so much to write a story about what it's like to be a guard, but to show what life is like inside of a private prison. And I kind of thought naively that I would, you know, just kind of be an easygoing guard, stay out of people's way, and, you know, I wouldn't have much trouble. But the pressures of that job are so intense. I mean, I'm in a a unit with 350 prisoners, and on the floor there's one other guard, me and one other man who's in his 60s. And we're literally not able to do all the things that we're meant to do in a day. And... I am the kind of, in a way, of the face of the company to the prisoners. I'm the person they're interacting with day to day. Prisoners are constantly frustrated that their recreation time is not is getting cut. Their classes are canceled. You know, there's always issues of uh, there not being enough staff to run the programs that they're meant to have. So there's there's so much tension. There's also a lot of violence between the prisoners. There's stabbings. I see stabbings in front of me. And I find myself becoming more and more authoritarian. And, you know, in the beginning, I kind of, I did think of myself as a former prisoner, which is what I am. And so, yeah, there was some kind of natural sympathy, even though, you know, I had been in a political prison in Iran, and this is, these people were in prison for different reasons. There's still kind of a, a sympathy for just the experience of being locked up. And it was challenging at first, to do things that in some ways felt like a betrayal to my former self. One time I found a, a cell phone, which is contraband, and had to confiscate it. When I was a prisoner, I would have taken a cell phone at any moment, and I would have never kind of snitched on another prisoner that, that had a phone. But my, my job was, of course, to take the phone. And really quickly, with, I would say within the first couple of weeks, I had to, um, I kind of turned off that part of myself. Any Any part of myself that would feel guilt for the, being in the role that I was in. I just had to turn it off. And it, once I did that, the job became much easier. And I think this is common. I saw this with, with other guards too. Either they, when they started on the job, they would either do the same thing and kind of become more hardened or they would quit because they just couldn't do it. You lasted for four months on the job. What happened? How did this end? I was in the prison during a, a very chaotic time. There was kind of a meltdown while I was there. There was almost a riot. The company had sent in its tactical teams to bring the prison under control. The state had taken over. And in the midst of this, my colleague at Mother Jones, James West, came to 
Louisiana to shoot some video. We produced some some short videos to run with the, the article that that then later led to the book. And we kind of shot footage around town. He interviewed me, and then uh, I went home to go to sleep and to get ready for the next day. And he went to the prison uh, after dark to get some nighttime shots from the outside of the prison. He was spotted by a guard and was then arrested by deputies and spent the night in jail. And officers, there was state police there, and they had said, we don't care if that guy works in the prison. You know, we just want to know what you're doing there. And, you know, so it seemed that they somehow figured out what had happened, that I was working there. I found out later that they had searched his his footage, his camera, and his laptop uh, without a warrant. So they saw the interview of me. So as soon as he got out of jail, we just packed up and, and left the state immediately. And then it kind of became known it was leaked in the local media the next day that, that I was a reporter working there. So the company knew in advance, and they had sent letters to Mother Jones uh, threatening to sue us if, if we published the article. And you did publish the article. It was a long article to, to great acclaim. What made you decide that this needed to be expanded into a book? What could you get into here at book length that you couldn't in that piece? There were a lot of things from the prison that I didn't, even though the article is very long, I was basically getting into some of the, the characters in the prison and kind of the more uh, subtle aspects of the life in the prison. But I also felt that to really tell this story of private prisons, I needed to go back in history. So uh, I essentially spent a year doing historical research, digging into archives, news archives, finding old penitentiary reports, reading you know old books, memoirs, and I discovered a lot that I did not know about when I was working in the prison. And I wrote the book in a way that kind of alternates chapters between my undercover experience and the history of for-profit prisons in America from before the American Revolution up to the present. And I kind of traced the evolution of these prisons. For most of American history, especially in the South, prisons were intended to turn a profit at some periods for directly for states and for some periods for private companies. We've had periods in American history where, especially after the Civil War, where, you know, the entire Southern prison system was privatized. And the system that was known as convict leasing was actually more deadly than slavery. Death rates throughout the South were 16 to 25% a year. Prisoners were forced to to labor and, and sort of fulfill the role that slaves had, had filled before the Civil War. Is this a uniquely American enterprise, or have prisons been privatized in other countries? There are private prisons in other countries. The UK has them, South Africa has them, Mexico does, and other Latin American countries. It was an American invention, both the, the modern kind of corporate version and historically. Penitentiaries themselves were invented in the United States, and the very first penitentiary that ever existed was, was meant to turn a profit. So it is a very deeply American creation. Is there anything favorable to be said about a private prison versus a public prison? The only argument for them is that they save money. There's nothing about the way that these prisons function that is better. On almost every indicator, worse. They're more violent. There are less programs. And this is not just my observation is one prison. There are also Department of Justice studies that, that support this. But even the issue of cost is, is controversial. The Department of Justice recently uh, had a study saying that the cost savings are negligible. And the issue of cost is actually a very difficult one to get at, to really kind of find out how much 
states are saving. Counties will offer subsidies to these companies to attract them, you know, to their counties, which of course goes back on the taxpayer. Some states will, like California, the companies worked into the contract that the states cannot send them inmates with severe medical issues, which means that those prisoners are in public prisons, which goes back onto the taxpayer. So there's, you know, there's a lot of kind of hidden costs. But, you know, ultimately, the question we have to ask ourselves is, even if there is some level of cost savings, is it reasonable for us to put people in prison under a company whose first priority is, is making money rather than any form of, of rehabilitation? One final question you mentioned when we began talking that you spent time in a prison in Iran. How did your experience in an Iranian prison compare with what you saw in a private prison in America? Obviously, you were on a different side of the equation. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to, it's really hard to compare prisons or, or say that one is better, one's worse. But the prison I was in in Iran, Avin prison, I was in the political ward. So I was held with activists, pro-democracy activists, we were kept in solitary confinement or in a cell with, with other people, but we could not interact with anyone outside. When we left our cell, we were blindfolded. I was almost entirely cut off from the outside world for two years. People were physically tortured there. In Wynn, you know, obviously it was not a political prison, but where Evin was controlled in a very extreme way, Wynn was the opposite. It was chaotic. It was very minimal structure. So uh, it was very violent. You know, there was not violence between prisoners where I was in, in Iran, but in Louisiana, there, there was a lot. You know, so it was kind of the oppressive nature of being in a hyper-controlled place versus the all-out chaos and violence of a private prison. Shane, thank you so much for being here. This is such an important book. It's called American Prison, A Reporter's Undercover Journey into the Business of Punishment by Shane Bauer, and it's reviewed this week on the cover of the book review. Joining us now to talk about what we're reading, my colleagues Greg Coles, Maria Russo, and John Williams. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hi, Hi, Pamela. All right, let's start with you, Maria, because it's been a while since we've had you on here. Maria is, by day, our children's books editor, but also a reader of many grown-up books, too. What are you reading? I try to. I try to keep a grown-up book or two going at the same time as I'm reading all the children's books. Right now, it's The Largesse of the Sea Maiden, Dennis Johnson's last collection of stories. As you know, he died last year. And I'm just catching up to it. And it's breathtaking, devastating. And it's just the thing right now. Have you read a lot of Johnson? I haven't read all of it. I mean, there's a lot. And I do prefer his short stories. The thing I like about these stories is they really are, to my mind, going toward the novella length, which is the perfect length. They're not too short. They're not, but they're not the commitment of a novel. And they're just like Jesus's son. They give you this this sort of soulful feeling of looking at the whole spectrum of human life and human society, but coming from a place of how can we find connection? How can we look for something greater in amid all of the disaster and and dysfunction. There's also beauty and hope and, and beautiful language. And it's really helping in these these difficult days to have a little Dennis Johnson in your mix. Dennis Johnson as therapy. As therapy. <laughs> What's your therapy this week, John? You know, I just finished a very small and I thought really interesting book that I would highly recommend, although it's probably hard to get here. It's called Robinson. It's by a writer named Jack Robinson, and that's actually a pen name for a British publisher named Charles Boyle. And he he runs this small publishing company that publishes this book and others. 
it's a book that falls into the category, I would think, of there's something sort of Jeff Dyerish about it. It's not it doesn't have that kind of humor and and panache, but it, it's a little more serious than that. But it's it's like a book about writing a book. It's about having read Robinson Crusoe as a British school child and and about how Robinson Crusoe there since he's so widely read in school when people are young, is this kind of foundational myth of almost this Ayn Rand, self-dependent, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And it's very much a post-Brexit book. And he, he only says that explicitly a couple of times, but it's really about Crusoe's fear of strangers, his need to build a wall on the island, even though he's mm. essentially alone. It's really fascinating. And the other thing that he does, which I love when books do this, is that he writes about all of these other stories, and I didn't know there were quite so many, that are directly influenced by and are riffs on the Robinson Crusoe story. And one of the many that he mentions is a novel called Foe, F-O-E, by J.M. Katsaya. And I hadn't read Katsaya in a while, so I picked up this also kind of slender novel, and it's about a woman who washes ashore, shipwrecked, meets Robinson Crusoe and Friday, and then she's telling, she's recounting the story of what happened on the island and, and how she came to know them. I actually read that in college in the in the class in which I was assigned to read Robinson Crusoe. Oh, it was so the sort of origins of the novel. It was interesting to read them side by side. Oh, we should talk off air. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Greg, what do you have in front of you other than you do have Ulysses? I, I did bring Ulysses with me because it's been a while since I've talked about it, except to kind of to mention in passing that I'm still reading it. And I've been dipping in and reading a sentence at a time or a paragraph at a time. I finally finished the Cyclops episode of Ulysses and moved on to the Nausicaa um, episode, which is very different. Nausicaa is a very famous episode of Ulysses. It's the episode set on Sandy Mount Beach where Bloom masturbates while he's watching a, a girl and her friends hanging out. She's aware that he's watching and she's kind of acting very flirtatious. When Ulysses was serialized 100 years ago, this was the chapter, the episode that kind of that scandalized alerted the censors yes exactly (laughs) um and and got him into so much trouble finding a a publisher for the book as as a book i mean how clear is it that he is masturbating how is it written it's pretty clear i mean to the extent that anything in joyce is clear and it's it's funny because in the earlier section the cyclops section he's in a bar where there's this irish nationalist going on and a woman in the door points out that his fly is undone. And so it's, it's you know, Bloom is such a kind of seething mass of sexual insecurity and, and just lust kind of always on display that the open zipper ties right into that. But it also foreshadows this masturbation scene. You know, there he is, you know, next time we see him again with his zipper open. Once you're in Joyce's world, there's always kind of sex going on, and it's it's clear that that is the censors weren't crazy. Yeah, (laughs) weren't hallucinating it. But you've got another book there. Uh, Yeah, I'm also at the same time um, reading Rebecca Mackay's The Great Believers, which Michael Cunningham reviewed on the cover of the book review earlier this year. It's a novel that takes place in two time frames. It toggles back and forth between the mid-1980s at kind of the dawn of the AIDS crisis in a community of gay men in Chicago, focusing especially on one of them, Yale Tishman, who's, who's kind of the protagonist of those sections, and then jumps to basically the, the present moment, 2015, with a friend of his, a woman named Fiona, whose brother died of AIDS back in the 80s, and she is now going to Paris in search of her daughter. And it's it tells those stories simultaneously. 
Um, one of the things I'm, I'm really enjoying about this book, Yale Tishman works at an art gallery in Chicago, at an art gallery at Northwestern. And th- there's this strand of the book where he, the gallery is just getting off the ground. They're trying to build a permanent collection. And they've had an offer of sketches from very famous early 20th century artists, Modigliani among them. But all these sketches were acquired directly from the artists by a woman who modeled for them. And there's no kind of paperwork behind them, no um, authentication. and uh, Yeah, no provenance, exactly. And so Yale, who's this young gallery worker, not even really in charge of acquisitions, but she has sought him out, this woman, to... Uh, needs to authenticate them. So there's all this sort of like people talk about Philip Roth, American pastoral, you'd learn all about glove making. And it's this, you know, the whole idea of process carrying through a novel is fascinating. Talking about art, the most incredible scene in Largesse of the Sea Maiden, the title story, is that scene where a wealthy art collector takes one, he has a um, a Marston Hartley drawing and someone sort of dares him. And he says, I could throw this into the fire if I want. I own it. Do you remember that scene? And then he does. Yeah. And it's just this incredible take on on waste and wealth and the value that we give to art. And where does it... Right. How you assign right. value to art. And if and he owns whole... it, he says, I own it. It's my right to throw it in the fire. Yeah, but it, then don't we all own art? It's one of the great questions about forgeries, too. You're looking at exactly the same painting and, you know, depending whether this person painted it or, or somebody you know else just imitating it, it's it's worth hugely different amounts. Pamela, what does your reading this week have to say about art? Nothing. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, actually a little bit about art on the surface, perhaps not. But I was recently in Athens for a conference on democracy and one of the authors there whom I interviewed and then moderated a panel with him was uh, Rob Ryman, who came out with a slender book earlier this year called To Fight Against This Age on Fascism and Humanism. It came out in January and was reviewed in the book review at that time. And it's an interesting little book. It's two separate pieces. The first is an essay and the second is actually a work of fiction, although a very persuasive work of of fiction, realistic in certain ways and kind of metaphorical, obviously metaphorical in others. So the first one is called the return of fascism. And Ryman's argument basically is is exactly that. It's back. (laughs) But what's interesting about this essay is that he wrote it in um, 2010 in uh, the Netherlands, which is where he's from and, and lives. And in response not to certain presidents of the United States, but instead to Geert Wilders, I think is his, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I'm probably pronouncing it in some weird, vague, unapplicable Middle European uh, (laughs) way. But anyway, he's the head of a kind of fascistic far-right party in the Netherlands. And so this essay was written largely in response to him, but it certainly applies to other figures both in Europe, whether it's Orban in Hungary, and then, you know, people might also see a an analogy here in the U.S. What is, I think, the best thing about Ryman is that he he's just one of these classic European intellectuals who will bring in not only philosophers and political thinkers, but also literature into his arguments. And the second piece does that even more explicitly. He writes a lot about Thomas Mann, 
in both pieces and about the fact that you know, a really interesting anecdote about Mann that when Thomas Mann came to America in 1938, he gave this kind of he did this national tour and thousands of people would show up at, at these venues. And he said that when fascism comes to America, this is 1938, it will come in the name of freedom. That was very interesting. And I was reading this actually at the same time that I was reading Bob Woodward's Fear. So I was thinking freedom, fear, I, you know, just uh, thinking about those two ideas and, and about fascism. But the second piece is called The Return of Europa, and it is fiction, which is, he also wrote it before 2016, but just translated and, and published in America first in this book. And it's about literally Europa returning to a modern Europe. And she is tries to check into a hotel because she, of course, doesn't have anywhere to live. She doesn't have papers. That is a problem, not too much of a problem as long as she can pay for her room. Of course, she doesn't have money. They ask where she's from. She is from Phoenicia, which is in Lebanon. So now she is a refugee. And it sort of asks that, starts off with that question of like, you know, what what would, what happens when a stateless, moneyless person who is Europe returns to Europe of today and how would that person be greeted? And then it sort of shifts from there to two different that first scene is in one of the famous hotels in Davos. So we already see that we're talking about the Magic Mountain. And then we go to another hotel in Germany. He uses a fake name for the, for this hotel in the short story. But you can actually, with the help of Dr. Google, figure out what this castle is. And it, it does have a real history behind it. But at that second hotel in this story, there is a kind of international conference of ideas and you have three different people coming and the first person is sort of arguing that technology will save us and the second person makes a different argument. And the arguments are so persuasive that you kind of forget that you're in fiction. So it, it's an interesting little book that takes, you know, a couple of hours to read. And so that's what I recently read. It sounds timely in ways that are distressing. It was, it was, I have to say, it was very interesting to read it um, in the context of, of Athens and um, these, these times, shall we say. Well, I'm impressed by people who can dive into things that are even more reflective of the times. I think I'm escaping a lot with Robinson Crusoe. You're reading a Brexit novel, John. Yeah, that's true. I guess yeah. metaphorically it's, it's apt. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I'll escape no next escape. week. We'll, we'll, we'll follow Maria's lead and go <laughs> elsewhere. Greg, Maria, John, thanks so much. Thanks, Pamela. Thanks, Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back. The Book Review Podcast is produced by Peter Rosado from Headstepper Media with the great help of my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.